This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African-American political thought and action. Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a Black left perspective. I'm Margaret Kimberly, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Coming up, Joe Biden made his international presidential debut at the G7 meeting, proclaiming that America is back and meeting the Queen of England. But what does that mean for the future of the world? Journalist Richard Medhurst provides a political analysis. And New York State Assemblyman and former Black Panther Charles Barron has mixed feelings on legalization of marijuana. But first, what's the ultimate cost when Black social movements accept corporate funding? This month, Dr. Joy James, professor of humanities at Williams College, moderated a summit meeting of activists and organizers on accountability in social justice movements. The founders of Black Lives Matter report they amassed $90 million last year, much of it from corporate philanthropists following the George Floyd protests. What does the donor class hope to get in return? Dr. James put the issue in historical perspective. Funders pay for outcomes. Finance capital doesn't fund liberation movements. I mean, they fund stuff, but it's not like we're not here to give you millions of dollars so you can free yourselves and derail predatory capitalism and imperialism. That's not what we paid for. So one of the things that did not happen last week on June 12th was there was not enough emphasis or attention paid to a statement that Black Anonymous, a group of Black activist radicals put together. And they tracked it from 1963, the Kennedy administration with corporations doing a buy-in into the March on Washington to present day contradictions in the Black Lives Matter movement. And again, movement gets defined in different ways, but the death of activists such as Darren Seals, other Ferguson activists going to prison or being found executed, I believe it was Diane Jones. I, when I went to Chicago in 2019 for the refounding of the National Alliance Against Racism and Political Repression with Frank Chapman heading it, and he has this very interesting book out on Marxist-Leninist perspectives of Black liberation. But listening to the parents talk about a dead child they found hanging in their yard and how that story disappears in the official movement narratives, because the official movement narratives don't really reconcile terrorism against black communities as much more than symbolic and so able to be redressed in conventional politics. When terrorism against black communities is a form of declaration of war, but since we're mystifying violence in order to fit into that you know, holistic, multicultural rainbow, not Hampton's rainbow, right? But merchandise rainbows like that they'll sell you now with Juneteenth. When we move from the material conditions of struggle and violence against our communities and our leadership and political imprisonment, then what we're fighting against becomes, it's mercurial. It keeps moving around the board. And so, again, you know, be repetitive, why not? Real money doesn't pay for freedom. Real money got made because of enslavement and genocide. So why would people stop accumulating, quote, real money 
from predatory violence unless you force them to stop accumulating. And the narrative of how you wrestle with this seems it becomes more vague as it filters through corporations, the academy, and other sites. And what did come out of the Summit for Accountability and Social Justice movements last week? It was only a two-hour-long session. Yeah, we can't control time or deities, but yeah, it was only two hours, and there were more than 10 people on screen. And so again, my appreciation to I Mix What I Like, Jared Ball, Black Power Media for hosting. But one, there wasn't enough time. And two, as you know, Mr. Ford, as Barr eloquently writes and dissects, we have no consensus about political struggle, in part because of money, in part because of ideology. People want to move away from radicalism across the street in order to stay in the good graces of the state and employers and influential networks with money that are pro-capitalist. But I would say, based on Black Anonymous's analysis, and that statement is posted on the Black Internationalist Union's website, which people can find, their statement for the, the summit. I would say following reading their analysis, but also some conversations with them, there's a difference between mobilizers and organizers, all right? And there's also a difference between impacted families that are suffering from trauma and political activists that respect them, but do not personally work for individual families. I mean, a movement writ large is a movement writ large, right? So the grief and trauma of individual families is real, it must be respected, but it is not necessarily a political analysis for unifying different sectors of resistance. Mobilization will get people into the streets, but then after you're in the streets and you're dealing with predatory police or somebody like Kyle Rittenhouse, like teenage serial killers, once you're in the streets, right, that's not exactly organizing that sustains itself to expand networks and create a security apparatus and to deliver material needs. So what can you do in two hours? It's a really good question. I mean, you listen, you learn, you see the diversity, you see the disagreements, you see the alignments, and then people decide where to go to from there. I mean, it was intergenerational. There's mothers that I've worked with in Chicago who've lost their children to CPD. Of course, the Chicago police also ran a torture ring for years with impunity. But Shapiro Wells was part of the summit and spoke about organizing. And her approach was not going to be similar to everyone's, but she had an analysis, right? Max Parthas, who works with the Abolish Slavery National Network, who taking on the 13th Amendment and the specificity of torturing people as enslaved in U.S. carceral sites, he had his analysis as well, saying like the police are essentially slave catchers. And until you deal with the phenomenon of slavery and its reiterations, we get nothing done or secure no permanent territory to even have a fragment of peace. So I agree, two hours is not enough, but we hope that these conversations, BLM 10, people who spoke from Kentucky, Ashley Yates spoke from Ferguson forever. Bianca Jamar, who spoke about the Women's March. 
We hope like a jigsaw puzzle, people can put pieces together and figure out how they want to go forward with integrity. The last time you spoke with Black Agenda Radio, we were talking about the plight of Tamir Rice's mother, who's been seeking Mm -hmm. relief or some cooperation from Black Lives Matter and named names about who was not supportive. Right. So, yeah, I, you know, if I backtrack, I would say the origins to this summit came about when graduate students who knew an advisor of Mumia Abdul-Jamal, and, you know, as you know, I've tried to, as best I could, not always sufficiently, you know, support political prisoners, asked for an intro, and then once they met me, asked if I would meet with several mothers, Samaria Rice being one of them. And... Ms. Rice has been very clear about her encounters. We attended or attempted to write a statement that differentiated impacted families from activists. And I think some lines got blurred, but you know, that's always reality in which there was a collective meeting that was called upon. I have been invited to sit at that meeting, not necessarily to talk, but then it turned out that the principals who received the million dollar, I, I was going to call it a surplus, I'm sure it's an investment in something, right? They did not want to meet. And so the mothers decided to pursue their own avenue and they maintained their voices. They spoke to with you with Barr without me present. They've had interviews in other sites, all kinds of media, and they will continue to speak to their needs and their demands for justice. What the rest of us do right? It is in alignment, but it is not a replication of what the families do. I did mention for like all the seven minutes or whatever that I was on the summit, because my role has been background role, right? I did mention that a number of the organizers, we too have family members who have been murdered, right? Perhaps people who engage in this kind of work are traumatized. I'd say all black people are traumatized, but there's the specificity of trauma because you've seen the war close up and the disposability and you're determined to resist it, not to climb a professional ladder to be actually in a managerial sector. And again, I know everybody needs a job. I've got a job. I have health care. I'm not disputing whether or not we should be employed. I'm just asking if the symbolic registers of some of those jobs is more about placating people's demands for justice and rights rather than delivering upon those demands. This time last year, back in June, we were in the midst of the George Floyd protests, which reportedly put more than 20 million people in the streets. But you seem to be saying that as impressive as 20 million people marching might be, that doesn't take the place of the organizing to build real networks of people who can do things on the ground all year round. I agree. I mean, look, to go back to the Black Anonymous statement for the summit, there were a whole lot of people at the march on Washington, on the mall, right? And then what, a month later, there's a bombing in a Birmingham church that kills four black girl teen activists. And there are responses. Some people have private funerals. Some people allow King to do the eulogy at their daughter's funeral. 
and sectors of the black community just rebel and they start to burn down Birmingham, which nobody really talks about that much. We always have choices. The issue for me at this point is, you know, I'm, I'm getting older. I've been organizing in different capacities for over 30 years, right? The issue for me is the longevity and struggle, but also the clarity about the nature of it, right? We will not be funded into freedom. We will not be managed with a managerial elite or academic allies into freedom. Structurally, that's the money, the academy, right? And the managerial ethos are not pro-liberation, no matter what their sensibilities and goodwill ethics are. Like This is an imperial, racist state. Empire accumulates through violence. What I've been trying to do with different people and different generations to the extent that I'm helpful, and of course, I'm not always helpful. I am trying to work collectively to clarify with how do we counter violence and also infiltration. And we don't even know always that we've been infiltrated. I mean, these grants and all these monies, or as the statement notes, and I believe Sher Pearl Wells, dark movements are taking money from what, Amazon? Deutsche Bank, I mean, these are the people who destabilize our communities, not just because they're exploiting workers' rights or grifting Deutsche Bank capital with, they should be, I guess they've been sued and they keep beating the rap. But in these large corporations coming to, quote, help, there is a bird of prey. And what's happening is we're being sold back our own movement. Like how, you know, I mean, I've been for the last couple of months talking about Emil Cabral and returning to the source. In 2018, I spent a year only giving talks about Erica Garner and how brilliant and passionate she was, but also how she seemed to disappear because she didn't fit that polished image, the managerial ethos of the quote, new movement leaders, right? But that's the source. Erica Gardner's the source. Before Gardner Cabral, the source. We have a rich legacy because we have a rich history. And we can outthink our opposition, but we also need to realize that some of our opposition look like us and they show up with, you know, really nice cars and nice property and really expensive networks because they're useful. Does that mean they don't care about black people? That's not my judgment call. It only means that structures operate in predatory fashion. And if you can't align with the source of radical, intellectual, spiritual, revolutionary love and commitments, then, you know, people should find another job. There are some sectors of our movement in which there is a long history of criticism and self-criticism. But... In the black public at large, there seems to be lots of opposition to criticism of black institutions by black people, as if that should be kept within the black house. Yeah, I mean, come on. I've, that one is so old. I know it's real because I'm hearing it. But look, that line has been around a long, long time, right? So... People are like, it's like water on a deck back. We don't care anymore. We have the right to critique. Look, if you present yourself as leadership, 
then you need to deliver. And I know more has been done besides Biden signing into the, oh, Juneteenth is a holiday now, like enjoy and picnic, which, you know, I grew up in Texas. We were like doing that on Juneteenth. I get it. But I, I want to know, like, if a coup is bad for the U.S., why is a coup good for Haiti? You know, what's going on with Africa? Why haven't we thrown down to protect Brazilians in the favelas from police who act like death squads? What's going on in Colombia? What is our position with, you know, the occupation and the devastation against Palestinian communities? I mean, we could go around the globe. Just friendly reminder, this is an empire. The U.S., CIA, foreign policy have their hands everywhere in terms of destabilization and accumulation. So we get to critique everything and everybody until we're free. That's the phrase, right? Until we're free. Well, then if that's the lead-in phrase, until we're free, what follows it should be by any means necessary, which means you get to critique other black people. I don't need black people in terms of elite leadership to be my God. I already have a God, right? You're human too. You make mistakes. I'm human. I make mistakes. I try to apologize when I mess up. You could do the same. Also, I know how I make my money. You know, X number of courses show up for office hours, da-da-da. I do not necessarily make my money saying that I'm a liberation leader or I'm leading a freedom. No, I'm not that bold, all right? And it would not be accurate. But for people who do have that as their portfolio description, then we're back to where we started, Glenn. What is the accountability mechanism for recall? I'm old enough to remember when Pintos would explode if you they got rear-ended and Ford had to recall that flimsy homicidal car. So I'm using that as an analogy for our movement. If a six-year-old is shot at five days ago, and the person, because he's riding, the black baby's riding a bike in somebody's yard or something, and the person has a $10,000 non-black person bond, and then they're out, and then there's outcry, and they go back in. It's like, okay, this would be crazy making unless we had analysis about anti-blackness and terror against black communities. Since we have an analysis, it doesn't have to be crazy making. We just need deliverables. If you say that you know how to mobilize against black death, then you need to tell the community what the material conditions are and what is the procedure. And if you cannot deliver, then you need to respond to the community calls for meeting. And maybe somebody or some other kind of collective could do a better job. I don't think it's complicated. But of course, if you've already got $90 million, you call your own meetings and pack them with people who want a piece of that $90 million. Well, yeah, if, if you have access to capital like that, you meet with millionaires. You don't meet with, like, moms and dads who live in, in NYCHA or public housing. But this is what I mean. You can't fault the critics. The critics, well, they, I mean, the younger ones are, I don't even do social media. So, fortunately, I don't know what they're doing, but I, I know they're doing stuff. But the critics, right are in their own way, even when they're snarky, they're prophets. And yes, I mean, for all, I was in seminary, sorry if I'm abusing the noun, right, or the job description, but they're telling the truth to the best of their ability. If their role is kind of like John the Baptist, you know, locusts and honey, don't have a lot of money, but I'm going to call it as I see it, then the people in the big house, 
yes, and I did reference Malcolm, the people in the big house can't say that they're haters. They're simply truth tellers. And it would be really beautiful, and maybe this is a beauty that's fairly elusive, but it does exist, if we could actually talk this out. What is in the best interest of our communities? Predatory capitalism? No. Then what kind of economic structure? A kind of reparations that like divvies up black people? I mean, what would it mean? My mother was a sharecropper out of Mississippi. My father came from Texas, but I was born in Germany. Um, I don't know. Am I included in the package? I mean, come and stop already. International solidarity, right? There's an international repressive assault against our lives, against indigenous lives. And by the way, the Choctaws implicated in Juneteenth because, you know, so-called civilized nations had slaves too. And I believe, check my history, could be wrong, Choctaw didn't release black people until like Galveston rolled up and said, okay, I mean, the war's over, they're free. You got to let them go, right? So there's this specificity to anti-blackness and terror against black people that can't be masked or put under the umbrella of multiculturalism. There is a devastation of our economic stability to feed and house and clothe and educate ourselves that cannot be generalized as corrected under this contemporary economic system of neoliberalism, liberalism, or proto-fascism if it's Trump and company. We have to rethink the world. That has always been the project, right? Because genocide and enslavement destroys the world. But management cannot be part of the strategy. And outside funders, if they want to do an investment where we can buy stuff that the community controls, that's fine. But if it's an investment where people can buy personal property, I mean, yeah, I mean, you got paid. But if it's because somebody else's kid got killed, that's a weird accumulation scheme, right? So I want to leave on a positive note that is just based in the material conditions of all of us are doing something. And what I'm saying is it would be great if we opened dialogue and didn't silo in these structures of wealth and privilege, right? And non-black alliances. That means you can like play in those areas, but when you quote, come home, you have to talk to the community. So what we're trying to do coming out of the summit is build a Juneteenth archive where we can collect data on our movements from 1963, and the archive will continue to accumulate or collect to 2023. So it's a 60-year span. Starting with the March on Washington, 1963, Malcolm X's critique of it, Martin Luther King's participation, James Baldwin being sidelined along with Black women speakers. There are more details, right? But going from 63, moving forward to 2023, it will be housed at the college because we at least know we could stabilize that. There is no outside funding that is going to direct it. And we will try to the best of our ability to collect the analyses, the critiques, the celebrations, the care, and the determination to moving forward, which we only can do because we have no intent, none of us, to move backwards. And when you say the college, you're talking about the college where you work. Williams College, right. 
That was Dr. Joy James speaking from Williams College. The G7 nations held their annual meeting this month to much fanfare. A gaggle of European nations plus the U.S., Canada, and Japan consider themselves to be world leaders. But another way of looking at the G7 is a collection of white settler regimes and former and present colonial powers. We spoke with Richard Medhurst, an independent journalist and political commentator who was born in Damascus, Syria. Here's how he views the G7. Well, you know, it's it's like a cartel. <laughs> I think it's much easier to look at these things, that when we're, whether we're talking about the G7 or we're talking about NATO, mafias as cartels because that's the way they operate. It's just on an international level. They have the, the gall to come together and start criticizing Russia or China or Iran or, you know, whichever country they're, they're bullying uh, on that day. And you look at how they've handled things um, when it comes to COVID-19, for example, they didn't handle it. Whereas, uh, you know, China had a more a much more apt response. And they also have the Belt and Road Initiative going on. So, you know, these countries, they pride themselves in being strong economies and so on, but they're not really. You know, we're turning into a multipolar world now. Iran was just integrated as well into the Belt and Road Initiative. So there are lots of countries who have had it with this Western, this colonial-oriented sort of way of doing things, right? And they come together as well to, to try and uh, drive a wedge also between China and Russia and uh, undermine relations and I don't see them as anything more than a cartel and gangsters because that's all they do. They try to uh, posture and, you know, try to uh, pretend that they have a stronger economies and they're, they have the moral high ground when it comes to their so-called democracies. But, but all they're really good for is maintaining this neo-colonial rule, you know, maintaining a new colonial order. That's, that's really the way to see it. And it's very interesting how they leave out Russia, they leave out China. They're trying to malign them and, and ostracize them, but it's not going to work anymore because the world has had it. They're moving in a different direction now, and I don't think this will be a thing in the future, or at least hope not anyway. Because it's criminal, really, on a state level, on an international level. Yes, as most of the world knows, but Americans choose to forget, it was the United States that dragged the world into a global recession in 2008, and the United States yes. has the highest death toll from COVID and its economic collapse certainly dragged much of the world with it. Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, and no punishment either. You all these banks like Goldman Sachs and whatnot, uh, you know, uh, hedging bets, they're, they're just playing with the market like, like criminals, really. I mean, just because they wear suits, people think that they're not criminal. They're, they're more criminal than you can even imagine. And they get a slap on the wrist, they get bailed out. And they just continue business as usual, right? And so we're supposed to believe that even though you have these, these horrific recessions or dips, as they like to call them, right? They try to whitewash what it is every few years, that this is some kind of sustainable system for the environment, for people's lives, for uh, the planet in general. No, this is, this is ridiculous, right? And so it is the United States to drag the whole world into a recession. And we haven't even recovered from that one. And they bring on another one. And, you know, they, I think they've been very happy that COVID happened at the same time so they can try and mask their... their uh, ineptitudes and failures. It's been very practical for them to, to blame everything on that. But the reality of it is you would have had a lot of economic hardships, again, is putting it mildly. You would have had a lot of this unemployment, a lot of this crisis, as usual, because that's what capitalism is, right? That's what capitalism is. And there are a whole idea behind having these things like the G7, behind having NATO, behind having the EU, is to come along and say that, oh, well, you know, the way that we do things in the West is the right way. And everyone else, they come up with various names, right? So Iran and Syria, these are dictatorships. Uh, Putin is a strong man, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and now they're trying to push this lab leak theory about China also, saying that China purposely um, uh, leaked this or and did nothing about it, et cetera. When it's actually the ineptitudes of their corrupt governments in the West that, that made sure nothing happened. You know, it's actually other countries 
that have dealt with the crisis quite well. I mean, look at Iran. They've even developed their own vaccine and they're under sanctions. So, I mean, what does that tell you? So, yeah, there, there really needs to be a clear understanding here of these kinds of meetings and these kinds of cartels, as I think is the right way to call them, that they're just trying to maintain their order and discredit and, and smear and, and bash any other ways of doing things because it's, it, they see it as competition, right? And, they, and like real capitalists, as true capitalists, they go and try and crush it and uh, destroy it. So um, now also in the G7 that just took place, I mean, they're bashing China, et cetera. It's the same old, it's what we always see. Yes, and to many of us, it looks like some schoolboys insulting everybody around them. But one of the measures that was endorsed by the G7 was for a 15% minimum tax on corporations. Is that less than it seems? Well, you know, this minimum tax that they talked about, it's kind of a joke because you look at the way they used to do things. So just for context, this global corporate minimum tax, right? Right. They're talking about it as if they're going to implement it. I mean, I don't think that they're actually going to get around to it anyway, because, you know, multinationals, they always have a way of stopping these things in their tracks. And even if they would make it law, uh, it's not like they follow the law in the first place. They always have good loopholes and gray areas that they can exploit in order not to follow the law. I mean, we look at the biggest multinationals in the world, they pay no taxes. How does that work, right? So I don't know if they would actually implement it at all, but I don't see it as any kind of distribution or, you know, adequate redistribution of resources. This is like someone making off with rubbing a bank and then throwing a penny out. Now, it's, that's ridiculous. This doesn't solve the problem. It, it, they're just trying to appear as if they're, they're doing something about corporate greed. It, it, I don't believe it. I don't buy it for one second. And, you know, I, again, as I just said before, I, I don't want to deviate too much, but, you know, they've also been saying that, oh, China is a human rights abuser, et cetera. So all their statements are comical, you know, and I think it's important for people to view them in that way because it really is like a bunch of schoolboys, as you said. I think it's very eloquently put. Biden was strutting around the summit to the extent that he does strut, talking about the United States is back. And it seems like his G7 partners uh, wanted to compliment the United States by calling their economic program a uh, Build Back Better program, which is mimicking what Biden said he'd do in the United States. But none of these programs on either side of the Atlantic is evident in the real world. Yes, absolutely not. And it's, it's, uh, it's uh, interesting you bring up that slogan because, as you mentioned, it's been used elsewhere. I've seen, I think, even the Boris Johnson government in the UK using it. It's so preposterous, right? Because it's just like a liberal, neoliberal version of, of Make America Great Again, right? So it's kind of the same vibe. And uh, as you said, there's no evidence of anything actually happening. I mean, just as we were speaking now about this, this corporate tax rate, I mean, they say they want to do that. But, you know, there are uh, tax havens. There are countries, for example. Uh, so I don't, I don't just mean outside of the Europe, like the Cayman Islands and so on. But even Ireland, for example, they have a lower tax rate, which is why Google and YouTube and Facebook are all based there. So, I mean, these corporations, these multinationals, they have enormous power. They are actually running the government. It's not like they're two separate entities or something. And, you know, when we talk about economic development, yeah, where is it? You know, it's just non-existent. It's something that we heard about in the Biden uh, campaign when he was running for president, that he's going to uh, have the biggest jobs program since FDR. And again, you have all these people loading FDR as if he was some kind of socialist hero. And in fact, he had to be the movements at the time had to had to threaten him with revolution in order for him to do anything. And then they started them trying to undo everything ever since. And so um, yeah, in all these countries, I mean, they don't actually offer anything concrete. It's all just decorum and talking, right? The, the only things that they're really interested in is maintaining the bottom line, the profits of the various complexes that they have, right? So even in Britain, this is not just something exclusive to the US, but even in Britain, you also have a weapons industry, uh, uh, Germany, France, you know, they've all sold weapons to Saudi Arabia. These are the people who actually 
have economic development plans in place, not the people, not regular working class people. It doesn't exist for them, right? So it's very important to understand who these governments serve and who controls them and who they're bought by, because uh, otherwise people just get, gonna keep falling for this, this talk. It's just hot air. There is economic development going on on the planet. China's the only major country in the world that did not undergo right. a recession during the COVID crisis. Yes, absolutely. And now China, uh, as, I, as we were saying before, they dealt with this quite aptly. I mean, um, they were building hospitals on the fly, right, in 24 hours or something along those lines. Don't quote me on that, but it was very, very rapid, right, makeshift hospitals and, and uh, facilities and clinics and drive-through testing. I mean, this, they, you know, this is all implemented there months and months and months ahead. And, you know, ironically, I would say that it's, it's not just a question of just ineptitude, it's also corruption uh, that uh, the West did not react in the same manner because, Again, look who controls the governments and, and what the priorities are. The priorities are not public health. It's, it's making uh, money for big pharma, for insurance companies. That's the priority. And so if it's not, if it's not profitable, there's not going to be an action. Uh, I remember Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, he was also he was flying in PPP equipment. There was a shortage of all this protective equipment for nurses, for doctors. You had uh, nurses in New York coming dressed uh, in trash bags, for example, because of the shortage, right? And then they claim that America's the greatest country on earth and look how they treat their their health staff and equally in the uk nurses have to pay for their own ppe equipment it's preposterous and so jared kushner he was bringing in all this equipment and they were selling it to the highest bidder it's scandalous right it was barely even covered and they had states battling for you know in, in auctions for this equipment and then the highest bidder was outside the u.s they would get it so there's no interest in public safety or public health and china handled everything very well as you said i i find that their whole strategy and philosophy is completely different i mean you know, Britain and the American empire, which I see as just an extension of that, it's always been about profits. It's always been about greed. The Chinese, I find at least that uh, they, they see things, instead of coming and just killing people and occupying their land and then colonizing them and stealing their resources, they favor doing a mutual cooperation, something about based on mutual respect, right? And, and because their, their system is successful and it's based on mutual respect that it's taking roots, right? We just saw Iran sign a 25-year partnership with the Chinese just a few weeks ago, integrating them into the Belt and Road Initiative. They're afraid of this, right? They see this as competition. And the Chinese, for example, this is why Trump was banning Huawei products, because they want the American big, uh, Silicon Valley, they want Silicon Valley to dominate the big tech market. They want uh, their enterprises just to monopolize everything, right? And they cannot tolerate any kind of a, uh, competition, whether it's ideological, whether it's economic. It just doesn't work. And so they go and they come up with smears and so on. And the fact of the matter is that they, they aren't even capable of handling the things that they claim to be the best in, whether it's the democracy, where is the democracy, whether it's economic development, where is the economic development, right? So it's really time, it's high time that people take a look at how other countries do things and understand that the world is not just, you know, uh, unipolar and it's not just uh, the West that knows how to do things and that this white man knows best uh, mentality. No, this is wrong and it's very colonial, I found. One way to describe the G7 countries is to call them an amalgam of the historical and current colonial powers of the world, all getting together every year, plotting. And these powers also claimed, this time around, that they're going to somehow get a billion doses of anti-COVID vaccine. Uh, this happens after having hoarded among them about 75% of the world's supply and thereby allowing a number of mutant strains of COVID to propagate, which now threaten these very same G7 countries. Yes, it's quite comical that they say this now. I mean, if they had actually wanted to, to do this 
before to help uh, other countries, they could have. And I, I do think it's, the relationship itself is quite colonial, right? I don't think anyone ever stops and asks, why are there poorer countries that need help in the first place? You know, what impeded their economic development to the point that they need help? They can't even maintain a public health infrastructure. It's very important to ask these questions, right? You know, when, when you have countries like Britain, when you have countries like France, uh, like the Dutch, uh, you know, the, the Americans coming and stealing and, and uh, enslaving and, and pillaging for centuries, then you end up in the current situation where you have countries that are developed and others that are developing, uh, or as they put it, right, in, in, in their own words. And no one asks why we have this imbalance. And this idea that they're going to come and help, yeah, it, it would be better if they had not ruin these countries in the first place, then we wouldn't need help from them, would we, right? This is something that people miss a lot. And speaking of vaccines and hoarding them, you know, the Israelis, they inoculated Jewish settlers first. Uh, they do not even inoculate Palestinians who cross over to work in occupied Palestine every day, uh, who are used as cheap labor. And they made sure that uh, they had, you know, you saw this in the media, they, they were lauded for having the highest inoculation rate, that they're number one in the world. Yeah, but they were not counting the Palestinians who live under occupation there. So, of course, if you look at those figures that have been twisted and altered and doctored, then, of course, they're the first. If you remove the, the truth that there is a medical apartheid and occupation. And so, uh, of course, no one said anything about that. As a matter of fact, they were given money, right? So during these various relief packages, as they call them, that were passed, you had millions and millions given to Israel during the pandemic, right? When, as a matter of fact, Americans didn't have uh, enough vaccines or PPE or, uh, you know, unemployment or anything, any kind of social safety net and no health care just to begin with, right? There's tens of millions who have no health care, but they, ha they find the time to give Israel money and continue their occupation in this medical apartheid. And actually, uh, speaking of donating vaccines, I've also seen that Israel saying they will give Palestinians one million doses, but without telling everyone that they're expired, right? So I, I think it's uh, astonishing, as you mentioned, that they allow these various strains to develop and then pretend that they've come to save the day, when in fact, the situation would not exist had there uh, not been centuries of colonialism and neocolonialism, as these re this relationship still extend extends to this day through their various institutions, right, through the World Bank, the IMF, their sanctions, their uh, military occupation. So people have to ask themselves why we have this imbalance to begin with. There was a lot of talk among these rich nations about growing their economies in a greener manner. But the United States, with the biggest economy of the G7, hasn't made much of any progress in that direction. Yes. Once again, it, it, uh, Glenn, you know, it, it's really hard for me to hear all these statements that they make and these so-called commitments and, and plans and, and not find it extremely uh, comical and, and sad at the same time, because, you know, they talk about investing in green energy and they talk about, uh, as you developing um, their economies in a green manner. Yeah, but what does that mean? They never offer anything concrete, you know, the, the uh, corporations that the fossil fuel industry, industry, for example, they have such a hold on all of these countries and their governments that, that this, this just makes it practically impossible. I mean, just look at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, you know, uh, when they were you know, running for the Democratic nomination, they said, we'll ban fracking. And then as soon as they get the nomination, they, they were so outraged that people accused them of wanting to ban fracking on the Republican side that they, they specifically came out and said, no, we never said we're going to ban fracking. Right? So they cater to the fossil fuel industry their whole lives. Uh, the, the U.S. military is, has 800, uh, 900 military bases across the planet. It's the biggest polluter on the planet. So, you know, they could start by, uh, by not giving, what is it now? I think it's $740 billion. Biden uh, just proposed the largest U.S. military budget in modern history, $740 billion. How has that, first of all, got anything to do with economic development? And how is that helping the planet? 
it's just so bad. It's, it's really bad, uh, the, the level of corruption that is present in the United States, in the United Kingdom. I don't see these governments ever doing anything to protect the environment or anything green, as they say, because they're completely beholden and owned by people who have diametrically opposed interests. So it's just talk, you know, unfortunately. Well, Mr. Midhurst, what has come out of this G7 meeting that is of substance such that the world should care? Well, I, I think it's important to see uh, what kind of rhetoric they're using. So, I mean, these are the usual statements they make that, yes, we will have, uh, you know, we're going to develop our economies in a green manner. We're going to have all these like nice things that they promise. But at the same time, it's important to look at this Cold War with China that they're pushing now for some time. Right. So this is not something that just started with the G7, but they're continuing it. You're seeing the same rhetoric that is not just, uh, you know, unique to the United States. It's now being repeated by all these Western European countries where they're trying to malign China, they're trying to malign Russia, because they feel threatened by their economic development in various manners, right? It's not just some ideological thing. It's, it's they feel threatened by these countries because they have great economies and they seem to be handling crises, as we saw with COVID, much better. And they propose an alternative, and this is very bad for them. So they are continuing this rhetoric of, oh, China is a human rights abuser, Russia meddled in the elections, and of course, not just in America, they say that Russia did this in the United Kingdom, et cetera, et cetera. And they're stepping up this Cold War with countries that pose a threat to them uh, economically. And I think that's, that's the most important thing that people need to pay attention to, right? Because it really tells you uh, where the foreign policy is headed. Uh, it really tells you that these countries are not interested in actual uh, peace. They're, actually, they're interested in being hostile. They want to dictate to the world. They want to run the world and tell uh, everyone how, how things are supposed to be. This cannot continue forever, this colonial nonsense. So I, I hope people wake up to uh, the kinds of rhetoric and discourse that is being spewed by the G7 countries and, and realize that, it, that uh, a large chunk of it, if not everything, is just extremely arrogant and hostile. And this is not something that promotes diplomacy and it's not even good for their own populations. So, yeah, I think that's the most important thing is to look at look at how they talk about other countries and not just what they're going to do for themselves. I think the last point I raised is perhaps, again, something that people should uh, watch out for, because, you know, it's not something we're just going to see at the G7. We're seeing this in general where the propaganda apparatus, meaning the mainstream media in the West, whether it's in the United States or the UK, they have this 24-7 campaign of trying to uh, smear and attack uh, other countries like Russia, like China, like Iran, like Syria, uh, who do not tow the Western line, right? So if, if you do not comply with their cartel, if, if you step out of line from what they want, right, meaning their NATO interests and so on, well, then, you know, they're going to start uh, ramping up the, the propaganda. And, and this is very bad because it's conditioning the world constantly every day into believing this stuff, right? It's the manufacturing consent. And I think it's very dangerous because it, I find it also fundamentally racist. There's kind of this mentality that these people who are not white, who don't live here, who are on the other side of the planet, they don't know how to run their countries, they're corrupt, they're evil, et cetera, et cetera. I find it fundamentally very racist and I find it extremely colonial. And I think this is very damaging and it rocks people's brains. And when they get together again at this conference and just repeat all of this, it, it's very important for people to know that it's nonsense, right? I, it, it's very bad to actually take them for their word. And, you know, China has come out officially and told them that they're extremely displeased and I, understandably so with their human rights comments about China. And of course, as John Pilger put it, the one thing they don't tell you at the G7, right, is that since the 70s, two thirds of the world economy is controlled by the West, right? People need to understand that this is not some kind of uh, happy get together. It's, it's really a bunch of former colonial powers under the umbrella of the American empire getting together and imposing in front of the world and touting themselves as some kind of uh, champions of democracy and economic progress. They're not. 
they're not. It, it's fundamentally colonial and disgusting and racist. And I really hope people wake up to that. So that's really the most important thing that I would say. People need to read between the lines. That was journalist Richard Medhurst speaking from Vienna, Austria. Charles Barron, the former Black Panther and current New York State Assemblyman from the neighborhood of East New York in Brooklyn, took part in a webinar on legalization of marijuana organized by the Black is Back Coalition for Social Justice, Peace, and Reparations. The session was called Reefer Madness, which kind of sums up Charles Barron's view of the matter. We passed, we meaning New York State this year, the MRTA, the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. That's what was passed in the Senate and in the assembly and signed by the governor. When I'm in these bodies, these citadels of capitalism and colonialism, every bill that I negotiate, every bill that I sign on to, every piece of legislation that I study, I say, what can that do to advance the dismantling of the colonial capitalist system? What can that do to liberate my people? What can that do to, in the meantime, pending the revolution or as the revolution proceeds, do to bring some relief to my people? So it may not dismantle colonial capitalism all the time, but this particular issue or this particular uh, organization uh, process will relieve some pain. So when we're in East New York, if I can stop gentrification and get some real affordable housing as we define it, A, let's do it. If I can get the Senate and the Assembly to sign a piece of uh, a legislation and letter calling for the release of Jalil Montekum, so-called Anthony Bonham, calling for the release of Herman Bell and Seth Hayes, may he rest in peace. And we actually did it right on. So I put everything in the context of us being in a domestic colony of colonial capitalism. And not all of the colonial administrators are white. We have to deal with the neo-colonial black puppets of the Democratic Party who also are participants or, uh, you know, they are administrators in our community. So that's what I put this marijuana bill into that context. So when we were debating it, I was saying, number one, we have to dismiss all of the charges presently that any one of our people have been arrested for dismiss all the charges. They said, okay. Number two, as the chairman mentioned, we have to expunge all the records. Anybody that has a record, it's now being under this bill expunged. Those were my main two pieces for the legislation. Everything else I got problems with. I have real concerns with. Number one, to manage all of this, a Office of Cannabis Management set up by the governor, Cuomo, will be in control of the regulation, the taxation, the use of revenue will be all under the control 
of the Office of Cannabis Management. And that is under the control, five people, three from the governor, one from the assembly, and one from the Senate, not a single person from the community. I got problems with that because I don't care what they say in the bill. If that's the power and control, I doubt anything that you achieve in this bill is going to really happen. Secondly, they're predicting about $350 million in revenue from cannabis in New York State. Across the country, 7.9 billion, I heard 6 billion. And you know who's in charge of that? White men. <laughs> White men. John Boehner, the former speaker of the Republican Speaker of the of Congress of, of the House, the crybaby. He hates cannabis. It's terrible. It's immoral. Now he's the on the board controlling the multi-billion dollar industry. I got problems with that. In New York, $350 million, they said, okay, 50% of the cannabis license will be given to communities most affected by cannabis. And 40% of the taxation revenue will go to a social equity fund to deal with education, to deal with other social issues affecting our community. Yeah, right. Just like the lottery money was supposed to be going to education. We haven't seen a penny of that yet. So that I have problems with. I also have problems with saying you have to be 21 and over. And by the way, they will allow you to have up to 12 marijuana plants in your house. You can grow 12 marijuana plants in your house by law and not have a problem. So we'll be producing cannabis in our house. Now, let me depart and say hemp and cannabis, there are other usage of it other than recreational use especially hemp, which was under the Department of Agriculture in New York State. Now it's going to be put under the Department or Office of Cannabis Management. So they're going to move it and so that the governor controls everything. He's controlling hemp. He's controlling marijuana, cannabis, everything. And here, here's the thing. Some of these byproducts don't have to be recreational use. There are other things like clothing, food, legitimate food, not edible, you know, marijuana for getting high and the THC count. We better take close, pay close attention to that. That's what gets you high. Um, so this bill, my ambivalence was, you know, I could not vote against it when we could actually get our folk out of jail. And then, you know, if you have a record and you, or want to get into projects, or you living in the project public housing, they kick you out. And then all of our youth, you know, will have to put that on their application that they've been arrested. So that's the good part of it. But come on now, we are revolutionaries. We're talking about revolution. And I just don't see how the recreational 
use of marijuana, yes, it's not as bad as alcohol. It's not as bad as smoking cigarettes. But I don't see it as good for revolution. I don't see it as something that's good for advancing this generation, the revolution. I'm trying to make it happen in my lifetime. They say you got to pass the baton on and maybe the next generation will do it. I'm trying to see it now before I depart here. And I just don't see how you getting into the cannabis business, you getting one of those licenses to make it edible or smokable with however you're going to deal it to our people. I just don't see how that advances the revolution. And secondly, I also think there's going to be a real problem. You think these brothers that are and sisters that are dealing it now, the underground market, oh, they're going to stop and say, let me go get a cannabis license and let them tax my product? That ain't happening. So we're going to have major contradictions there. And I don't know how we resolve that. And then although it's for 21-year-olds and older, 14, 15, 16-year-olds, they're smoking it. And then in all due fairness to some who don't smoke it, the contact high, everybody in the hood is going to be high. Between the contact, you get that now when it's not legalized. So I think it's a real concern that we need to look at and not jump on, okay, we can use this revenue for education and we can use it at what cost? At what cost? Yes, it'll be good for education. Yes, it'll be good for health and all of that other stuff. But anytime the white male colonial capitalist is for something, it can't be good for us. And they'll make sure that they control all of this. So I'm hoping and I'm launching my little individual campaign if necessary around East New York. Yes, it's legal. Good, you can't go to jail, but don't smoke it no more. Good, you can't go to jail. Don't open up a store and try to deal it to our people. Let's take the benefit of not going to jail for it and let's get into vegan diets. You know, let's get into some, some, some carrot juice or something. You know, we're trying to talk about uh, health and clear focus and thinking. Let's get into meditation and let's get into things that will to clear our mind up. You know, I don't want to have an alcohol liquor store on one corner, a cannabis store on the next corner, murder burgers and McDonald's on the next corner, and then the funeral home on the fourth corner, because that's what's going to happen. You've been listening to the Black Agenda Report on the Progressive Radio Network. Information for liberation.